I feel that this time for me has been a way to really relook at everything and reevaluate the important bits. So I hope that what I do now in writing and things that I'm doing online is a way of inspiring people to find that little bit of France in your own life. You're listening to the Good Dirt Podcast. This is a place where we dig into the nitty gritty of sustainable living through food, fashion, and lifestyle. And we're your hosts, Mary and Emma Kingsley, the mother and daughter founder team of Lady Farmer. We're sowing seeds of slow living through our community platform, events, and online marketplace. We started this podcast as a means to share the wealth of information and quality conversations that we're having in our world as we dream up and deliver ways for each of us to live into the new paradigm, one that is regenerative, balanced, and whole. We want to put the microphone in front of the voices that need to be heard the most right now, the farmers, the dreamers, the designers, and the doers. So come cultivate a better world with us. We're so glad you're here. Now, let's dig in. Hi, Emma. Are you ready for a little bit of France in today's episode? I'm always ready for any France. I love France. (laughs) Yeah, you've been a Francophile from way back. Remember in high school when you wanted to switch from Spanish to French, even though it put you behind in your credits and your guidance counselor didn't want you to do it. They said it was a bad idea. And you said, oh, I want to do it anyway. Yep. I didn't listen. I didn't care. I just wanted to switch into French. And I did. And then we ended up moving here. I changed schools. And then I was really behind in French. And we had this epic French tutor that came over every day that summer. It was quite a journey. Madam Spittler, thank you so much. Yeah, she came every day. It was really fun. She became like a member of the family. It was wonderful. Yeah, I remember it was like right when we moved, she came. So she would always remark at like, oh, you've made good progress. (laughs) Yeah, we, the boxes were still out, but it all paid off in the end because you've actually spent a good bit of time traveling and living in France over the years, and now you're fluent, and now you even have a side gig tutoring French. It's true. And wow, thanks for the plug. Any good dirt listeners out there looking for some French tutoring, learn French with Emma.com. <laughs> <laughs> it's real. Yeah, a little. Yeah. Everybody's got to hustle, right? (laughs) (laughs) So what do you think it is about France or or the idea of France that pulled you in from such a young age? Well, I was really drawn to the culture in a way, and I don't think I knew what it was until I spent time there. But it was something about the aesthetic and the way that they appreciate beauty and everything about France, in my opinion, is beautiful from the architecture to the food to the landscape. Even the people are really beautiful. So it was probably just something sort of aesthetic like that at first. And then when I really got to spend time there, the slower lifestyle is so refreshing and the value of the meal and things are more simple. And I remember in high school, it was really impactful for me to see because I went for a senior trip with the girls in my French class and we stayed with French girls. We were like paired up and something that really affected me was that French people wear the same outfit for like a week, if not more. Like you wear the same outfit every day. Yeah. That like really impacted me. Maybe that was like one of my first kind of experiences with like slow fashion, like rewear your clothes and you don't have to stress out about wearing a different outfit every day. And the result of that is that you don't have a lot of clothes. Like they just don't have a lot of clothes and it's great. Yeah. I remember when I was in school, you would literally be ridiculed if if you wore something two days in a row, you would be laughed at. Yeah. And this is like back in the seventies, like you just didn't do that. Yeah. That's so interesting. Wow. Well, it's sort of like you recognize sort of a slow living aspect of France before you knew, even knew that was a phrase or even a thing. Yeah, and we've talked about the slower lifestyle in France here on The Good Dirt. We talked to Jamie Beck back in one of the earlier episodes last summer. We'll link it in the show notes. 
Uh, she's also an American. So today's guest is an American. And she found her way over there because of her art. She went to go photograph things and went on sabbatical. And she ended up staying. So definitely after listening to this episode, go back and listen to Jamie's as well. Yeah. And today we're talking to Kate Hill, an American who stumbled upon her dream life in Gascony, which is the rural southwest of France, 30 years ago. And she's been there teaching the French culinary arts ever since. As a professional cook, Kate found a home in the rich terrain of the region that has nurtured both a career and a lifestyle that's steeped in history and the seasons and the flavors of her surroundings. We love talking to Kate and hearing about her life adventures and how she finally ended up where she is and talking about food and memories and naughty goats and old neighbors. It was like stepping into a storybook. It really was so enchanting. She's so enchanting. If you don't follow her already, definitely find her on Instagram so you can get a face to the storytelling. And we hope that you enjoy, sit back and listen. If you like food and stories, you'll really enjoy this one. And maybe, as Kate says, you will be inspired to find a little bit of France in your own life, wherever you are. So here's Kate. So tell us your story from the beginning. I always say I had a farm in Africa. And it was like, <laughs> no, that was Karen Blixen. That's another book. Who <laughs> was a fantastic storyteller. And yeah. I actually, my theater art were always the thing that moved me in, in school in my early life. So I studied storytelling. I studied puppet theater. I actually was a puppeteer for many years. In my 20s, I traveled and did shows around the United States and the Western United States primarily. I was born in Hawaii and I raised there and between Hawaii and California. My dad was in the Navy. So I always had this sort of travel bug. And then as I hit my 20s, my 20s and started wanting to really travel and see the world, I realized that as I could cook very naturally because my family were family of cooks. My parents had a restaurant. And this was, a, I didn't realize this was a skill that not everybody had. I just grew up thinking like anybody can make food together, you know, put food together. But I took a job as a, a chef on a yacht. And that was sort of the first thing I did to get myself out into the big world. And I went to the Caribbean and I worked in a sailing boat, a 42-foot sailboat called Windward with a lady captain, a girl that was about my age. We were just in our 30s. And that started it. And then from then, I traveled and traveled and traveled. And I came to Europe. And I would go back and forth and do different things. But always with this idea that if I could cook, I could make my way and go wherever I wanted to go. Plus, open up doors. There's nothing like knocking on somebody's kitchen door and saying, can you show me how you cook that? Mm. And people are always generous and welcoming. And I have barged into many people's kitchens all over the world. And part of that traveling craziness in my early 30s took me to Africa. So when I say I had fallen in love with the writing of Isaac Dennison and read all of her books and her great fables and stories. And I made an almost a year long overland trip across Africa. And with a boyfriend who was also a traveling mania. And we decided to buy a canal barge in France, in Europe. We got this boat in the mid 80s, came to Europe. It was in Holland and drove the boat south from Holland until I actually we broke down about 10 miles from exactly where I live right now. Oh, I just got goosebumps. Oh. <laughs> and it was just like fate. It was this area... And there's a little bridge just, uh, you know, like a couple hundred yards from my house. And I would come with the boat there because I could moor up by the bridge, turn the boat around because you needed a big turning point in the canal. And it would be outside of the towns and the cities. It was quiet out here. And really it was some years before I bought this or a couple of years before I bought this place, this old farm. But I arrived by barge and discovered it and ended up settling down and making this my home port for the last 30 years. Oh my gosh. And that was like in a nutshell. And explain to the listeners where geographically you are. So where I'm sitting is kind of in the middle of nowhere. 
It's in the middle of the southwest of France. So if you divided France in four, and you've got that southwestern quadrant, I'm kind of in the middle of that. And it's in an area that was known as Gascony. And I sort of retook up the banner of using the word Gascony because people didn't know where I was. If I said, oh, I, I live in southwest France, they'd say, oh, is that near Nice? And I'd mm. say, oh, that's almost in Italy, that's southeast France, or <laughs> I'm between Toulouse and Bordeaux, which are two huge cities, mm-hmm. but people didn't really know that they were even cities, Bordeaux wine, toulouse Lautrec. Mm-hmm. Nobody really knew the geography here. So when I came across the ancient duchy designation of Gascony, it sort of sits underneath the Garonne River, which is just like a, not a kilometer from my house, and then all the way toward the Pyrenees. And it's kind of like this little corner down here. Can you see the Pyrenees? I'm close to the Pyrenees, like three hours away. On a clear day, you can see them. If you're on a high point, you can see yeah. all the mountains quite far away because they're huge. Are you anywhere near the coast? I am. I'm inland about 100 kilometers, 60 miles or so directly from the Atlantic mm-hmm. and a little bit further from the Mediterranean. So I actually, in fact, I was planning a little road trip for next week trying to figure out where I'm going to stop on the way. I'm going to Provence for an event and I want to stop on the beach somewhere. And so I thought like two and a half hours that way to get there. It's an hour and a half that way to get there. So it's nice. I love this area because I can jump on a train, a fast train and be in Paris in three and a half hours, which I actually don't do much because I'm not much of a city person, but I can drive to Spain in four hours. I can, in either direction, I can be in the Basque country, I can be in Catalonia, I can be in the Mediterranean, I can be on the Atlantic. And I love that sort of proximity to all those things. I always tell people, the story of how I got here is like this long looping thing, but it's always like, well, why did you stay is the real question. And that was because there was so much here to feed the sort of curiosity as a cook. By then I had been cooking now professionally for many years. I cooked for people on the barge, but that was a spinoff from the yachting world. And then I decided I was doing, did some of the first gastronomic tours of this part of France, taking people to Michelin star restaurants and wineries and Armagnac cellars and places that I didn't have easy access to. And then I, with the little house that I had found that's on the canal, it was a place for me to park my boat and live on the boat, but have a little garden and have water and electricity. I decided I would fix the kitchen up in this house so I could do cooking classes. And that all started about 1991. And so between 1991 and 1995, when I wrote my first cookbook, A Culinary Journey in Gascony, it was that story of how I got here and what I discovered. I never left. I continued to travel. I love to travel. That's why the last couple of years has been very hard, not going anywhere. But I kept finding myself coming back and staying and really entrenching into this area because there was such a rich and deep culinary culture that goes so far. I mean, you can go right to prehistoric days and into the caves and see what people, how they cooked, what they ate, what they planted, you know, what they were hunting on the walls, you you know, where they painted these amazing tableaus of hunts and things. And so I just kept going deeper and deeper and deeper and felt there was still stuff for me to learn and I haven't left yet. This needs to be a movie. I know. That's why I was thinking the same thing. <laughs> I haven't given up on the little screen. We're starting with the little screen now. And yes. things I'm just, just they announced and set out the teaser for the new cooking series that I'm doing with Psalm TV, which is Psalm is short for sommelier. It's a oh wine and food streaming channel. And I met these guys a few years ago while they were filming a movie about butchery and charcuterie, which I've been involved with here. And they've developed this amazing streaming network that it really focuses on wine and now more and more food. And they talked with me last year and earlier in the year. And I said, well, I'm doing all these videos because nobody can come and travel here. I'm putting all my cooking classes online. And they said, let's video something. So we came up with the idea for a series called Cooking with Wine. I said, there's enough wine shows about pairing wines, but let's talk about cooking with wine, which is a big part of the culinary culture of France. So it's going to air August 5th, and I'm pretty excited about that. Oh my gosh, that is so exciting. When your barge broke down 10 miles-ish from where you are now, 
and you got out and you looked around. Was that your aha moment or did it it take a while to say, wow, look at this place? I mean, how did it kind of grow on you? Was it right immediate or? No, it was sort of like somebody coming along and hitting you over the side of the head slowly for half a dozen times before you realize it. So I come to this very specifically within 100 meters of this house where I'm sitting talking to you from. I had moored up the boat half a dozen times. I'd driven by. I'd never seen the house. It was very overgrown, like Sleeping Beauty's castle. Yeah. There's a pigeonier, three-floor tower that used to house pigeons. is where they would nest. And then they would use them for food and for fertilizer for the farms. And there was a piggery for the pigs. I'm sitting in the old piggery right now oh. in the barn, which is now my teaching kitchen. But I never saw the buildings. They were so overgrown. And it wasn't the aha moment really came another year or so when a friend, the guy who repaired the boat, when we broke down, Christian Bart, who had a boat building business in Agen, he called me. And this was the days before cell phones. We didn't know. So he had to track somebody down who had a phone that could get a message to me. I had to go to a pay phone at an auto route stop and call him back. It was all very convoluted. And he said, there's this house on the side of the canal. And I was like, yeah. And he said, well, it's for sale. And it was like, I live on a boat. I have a, it's, you know, the boat was big, 85 feet. It's a big boat. I don't need a house. And he said, but it's right on the canal. And I said, yeah. And he says, it's stone and brick. And, you know, and I'm still saying, Christian, it's very nice, but I really don't want a house. And he said, it has a pigeonier tower, which is sort of an architectural feature here, like having a watermill might be. Mm-hmm. And finally, I said, you know, I don't know. I have a friend, a good friend in California who was thinking about buying a house in France. Maybe I'll come down and look at it. So I took a day, I took a bus, I walked, I took a train. He picked me up. We drove out here. And when I saw this place, that was the aha moment. Because wow. here was this little, looked like a dollhouse, you know, a little tall with arched windows and pointy roof and chimney. And, you know, I'm still living as a gypsy in my boat. So the idea like a house you know, with a garden, and there's nothing but nettles and brambles all around it. Really, literally had a machete our way in. But right away, I said, I want this. I said, screw my friend. No, I said, <laughs> I my friend about it, but she has to buy it with me. Yeah. And then it was me who ended up buying it. So, And when was that? That was in 1989. Okay. I saw the house in 1989. And it had been part of a big farm. The farm is called Camont. So like there were place names. So we've only just got a street name and a number after all these years. In rural France, they decided to make a program where everybody gets, I suppose, because we all get packages delivered now. Yeah. yeah it would make it easier. So this was the year, 2020 was the year that everybody got a street number. But Camont was the name of the farm and it extended from, I'm in the old farm buildings. There was a farmer's house near next door. There was the owner's house of this many hundred acre farm at the end of the road, which still is there. And this went all the way to the Grown River and up over to across the valley. So it ended up being parceled over the years into smaller and smaller lots, or it was a small farm. And I bought it from kind of a land agency that was dispersing the agricultural, keep the agricultural land intact and in working, not to be developed. But nobody wanted these old falling down buildings except for me. So they, <laughs> I said, are those for sale? I was so excited. And they said, do you want to buy them? And they were in the <laughs> and we both, we were very happy on both sides of it. That's great. So then I guess you had to start renovating. I mean, there were big cracks going up the walls. So there still are a few of those cracks around. There was no roof over the kitchen. There was a tree growing. <laughs> Everything had fallen in the tiles. Once you get these heavy terracotta tiles and they move around, you get a little water drip and the wood rots and the tile weight makes a hole and the hole falls in and the beams fall down. And now we had about four feet of rubble in the bottom and no roof and a tree growing. And so it wasn't really exciting. I just wanted to plug in the boat. My boat was very comfortable and luxurious. Yeah. And- I just wanted electricity, which actually was already, there was wires already in the house and there was city water on the road. So I could just 
get the city water installed and I could fill up my boat tank. So I actually didn't worry about restoring the house to live in for many, many years. I kind of chipped away at it with friends and various partners early on. But eventually I realized that I wanted this kitchen that I could work in. And so that was the impetus for me. I wanted a kitchen that I could tell the stories of the food in and cook in a big open fireplace that was like six feet wide and Mm -hmm. tell the stories of the cooking of rural France and this part of France, which is nothing but a big farm. Yeah. Now, speaking of that, the stories of cooking of rural France, when you have a group of non-French people who come to you to learn how to cook and they've never really spent much time in France and they just like cooking, how do you describe to them why French cooking is so special in this seasonal, slow way and how it sort of feeds into the entire culture. How do you describe that to someone who doesn't know? I think it happens almost naturally the first time they taste something. I mean, I can remember in two instances, one and about 30 years apart, one when my 17-year-old nephew came to stay with me for a summer, which is kind of a scary thing to have a kid around. I don't, don't have my own children. And the 30 years later, an executive chef for a top restaurant group. Both of them, on their first day they were here, bit into a carrot. I, you know, and I, I said, here, peel these carrots. It's sort of like the Tom Sawyer painting the fence, uh-huh. whitewash. Yeah. Here, do something. And you can't help but you peel a bright orange carrot and you bite into it. And then it was like this explosion of flavor. That's what a carrot is supposed to taste like. I don't have to tell them. They respond to like, what is, what's up with this carrot? Like <laughs> <laughs> carrot. And I realized very early on, it's not about the recipes. And I research recipes because that's an interesting way to approach cooking. But I cook with ingredients. And so understanding ingredients is what I try to do with people. So they may come and learn how to make confit de canard or cassoulet or any of the special kind of regional dishes. But I really want them to understand what the actual ingredients are about and what that means. As a cook, it's easy to cook with fabulous ingredients. It's harder if you don't have those things right at hand or you're trying to do something totally out of season. Like there's no reason to be trying to do cassoulet now. It's out of season. It's Mm -hmm. hot. It's, you know, the... I wouldn't approach it in the same way. And the same thing, I wouldn't, in the wintertime, I wouldn't do classes that featured summer, you know, ratatouille. Ratatouille is a summer dish. It's made with the peak season tomatoes and eggplants and peppers and things like that. Mm-hmm. So getting people to understand, really understand what that means as a cook or to cook is to really learn your ingredients. And it's easy here because we have fabulous ingredients. I know where to go to get them. I mean, you can buy, you can go to the grocery store here and buy bad fruit that's been imported from South America. Like right now, there were apples from Chile or something right now. I'm surrounded by apple trees, but they're not going to be picked until September. So you can buy out of season and food that's not great, but it's also easy to buy really good food here. So when people come, it's an indoctrinization. It's slow. I don't hit them over the head with it. But the very first thing we do is go to the market. And then you just sort of get a sense of color and abundance. And you smell food. Like how you walk by the melon stand right now. And it smells of melon perfume. There's no question those are ripe. You you can just, you're standing six feet away and you can smell it. Strawberries, Mm -hmm. same thing. When strawberry season starts, it's like, oh my gosh, you just want to follow your nose down the little aisles and find the ones that you really want to eat. I think what you're describing is fresh doesn't mean raw. <laughs> fresh means like fresh, like like grown nearby out of good soil where care has been taken to preserve the integrity of the food and the nutrition. I think a lot of people might understand, like you read a recipe and it says fresh this or fresh that. That means, oh, well, you go to the produce department in the grocery store and you get the raw. It's not frozen. It's not frozen or canned. Yeah, this is a whole nother level. (laughs) The difference is, as a kid, and and, I mentioned I grew up in Hawaii, I was born there, 
I remember my mother, who was from Portland, Maine, just sort of saying, oh, I would just really like to have a great baked potato. Mm -hmm. I could never figure out what she was going on about the potatoes, baked potatoes, wrapped <laughs> in tin foil, a lot of sour cream, bacon bits, chives on. There was no flavor in a potato. I had no clue what a potato tastes like until I came to France and got the first, like right now we have the first field tomatoes that are coming in, potatoes, sorry. And uh, it was amazing. They're sweet. I had mm -hmm. no, I mean, they hadn't been in storage for two years or a whole mm -hmm. year. And the starch, the sugars hadn't turned to starch yet. So there was this, like, I said, is this a hybrid sweet potato, potato? What is this going mm -hmm. on? And people looked at me like, you're, you know, grown up. Don't you know what this is supposed to taste like? <laughs> and so I went through this same thing. Conversely, growing up in Hawaii, I know what a pineapple tastes like. Yeah. Now, I've never had a pineapple like the pineapples I grew up with. You just can't unless you're there. Mm -hmm. Right. So you can get an approximation of what a ripe pineapple is, but not till you're out in the field and you somebody cuts one off and opens it up and gives it to you and you go, oh, that's what this is supposed to be like. Yeah. And I think I'd say the same thing with chickens. The simple things, amazing eggs, they're like the basic thing of almost all the recipes. You know, a, a farm wife, anything a farm wife would cook with, poultry, even if they raise cattle, like my neighbors down the road from me have a small cow-calf operation with you know, 40 cows. They may have beef just once or a couple times a year. Mm -hmm. They don't name it around the holidays, but they would put up all their pork that they would raise. And then, of course, they would have chicken and duck and guinea hens, rabbits. And so all this farm-raised poultry and products are simple, but the flavor is amazing. A real farm chicken has, you don't need to add canned chicken stock to anything. You just cook it with the chicken. So I have to always look at these recipes that people put up online now and say, well, why are they adding those things in? Because if it really tastes, you don't need to add anything else to it. Just enhance that taste. So is there a larger food system in France that where they're using like industrial agriculture and the chemicals and all that, that is kind of parallel to what we have going on over here where things are just shipped thousands and thousands of miles across the country, if not internationally, you know, we, we call it the industrial food system as opposed to slow food or real food. But is France all real food? No, no, you can find bad food here. <laughs> you know for food, you can. But underpinning that is a culture, a history and a culinary culture that supports better food. Yeah. Because of expectations, because people have tasted it. I always I tell French people when I meet them and they're always curious about why I live here and why I do what I do in American cooking French food. And I said, well, when I came here and I was in my 30s, all you 30-year-old girls went to Paris or Toulouse or Bordeaux. And you mm -hmm. wanted to have jobs and work away from the family home and the farms. Yeah. And your mothers gave me all your recipes. So <laughs> I'm holding them for you until... You now are ready to teach your grandchildren. And I sort of feel like I became the, the archive for a lot of this food that didn't disappear, but was sort of at a risk of an entire generation. Basically, people my age who left and then they got seduced by this cheap and easier food. But the average French family or person still spends more time, attention, and money on food than the average American's family. So they will spend more money, they will take more time at the table, mm -hmm. and they will pay more attention. And now it's coming back as people see the real differences. And in my department of France, there are 92 departments in France, like counties, if you will. And this department, which is called the Lot Garonne, the two rivers that flow through it, the Lot River and the Garonne River, has one of the highest percentage of organic agriculture, organic land or oh. producing organic vegetables and grains and pulses and seeds. And we grow a lot of seed culture here. So there's a higher awareness of it. And at one time, you can buy any organic food here. It was all sent to Paris. Now, every market 
farmer's market I go to, there's more and more young farmers and also traditional farms who are transforming into organic or what they call reasonable agriculture with a minimal intervention. Oh, reasonable agriculture. We call it, you know, regenerative or sustainable. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say too, the, just within the culture, something that I was really surprised by when I lived there was just, you said time spent for meals, an hour and a half during the school day for kids. And a lot of times the kids would go home for lunch, but compared to, I think at my high school, I think we got 20 minutes for lunch. Crazy. I know. Even I had friends come today for lunch. We were celebrating somebody's birthday and we haven't all been together. One couple has, are they all? Yeah, they were all Americans. This was kind of unusual, but they were all people I've known for many, 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 many years. And uh, one couple had just come back. They haven't been here for two years. And it was somebody else's birthday, a friend of mine who's an artist. So I said, come over, we'll, you know, we'll have lunch. And we were there like two and a half, three hours. And it was like, you know, hey, you guys, I got to go back to work. Yeah. <laughs> uh, they're on vacation. But I said, I still have work to do this afternoon. Yeah. <laughs> but that you do get seduced by that sitting, breaking the day, being at the table, and there are city people that don't adhere to that, but I'd say out in the country, it's still pretty, you know, like our banks are closed for two hours. The post office is closed for two hours. All of the the shops, more of them are open through the lunch hour, but many, many, many shops are closed for that full two hours at lunchtime. What you were saying a moment ago about you being the kind of uh, archiver between generations, like you're holding these traditional recipes for the current generation that skipped it and also the generation to come. We talk about the, you know, the slow food, the slow clothing, just the slow living lifestyle in general. There's so much remembering in it. There's so much reaching back and bringing forward certain skills, not everything. Like we're not all going to go out and forage in the woods for our meals. You know, we can't do that. There's certain things about modern life that we'll certainly hold on to. But (laughs) just going back and retrieving these things that were before convenience was king, before there was this perception that you didn't have time for this or that, when in reality, what did we trade that time for? You know, the time we might have spent in the kitchen or around the table, the two and a half hours for lunch. What were we doing instead of that? That was so great. What we going back to the office, going inside the air conditioned building to, you know, shuffle papers or whatever. I think there's a growing appreciation for just remembering that, remembering a way of life. Yeah, and I think I have great faith in young families. I see that happening now. At one point, it seemed like there were only old people at the market shopping. I was the young mm-hmm. person at that time. And mm-hmm. all, as I said, all the people my age were, had left, basically left the farm life and these small villages. And what's happened is that, so this did indeed skip a generation, but the next generation, they still have a memory of grandmother's house or grandmother's, mm-hmm. you know, grandfather on the farm. And so when they started to have their families, they moved back to these areas. So all the little villages in my area, it's typical to have between 500 and 1500 people live in a, in a village, not necessarily in the village, but in the farms around the village. And then there's like a group of those villages. And so we have a you know market town where everybody goes to six, 7,000 people. But I, I see all the schools are growing that, you know, so these young people are coming Young families are moving back in, and that is where they get motivated to buy better food, to go out, to shop, to buy directly from the producers. Whereas in cities, you'll have people who are wholesale market buyers that will go to a wholesale market, buy like a bunch of strawberries or a bunch of artichokes and bring them somewhere else. Here, I almost am buying almost exclusively from people who are growing the food. But I see that what those young families are doing, they're trying to make those memories. It's just what, exactly what you said. And I even, I just wrote, I have a, a newsletter. I've always sort of set out the occasional posting, misses and blog post I've had on my website for many years. But I started this year, as many people did, a subscription newsletter. And I just wrote something though about tomatoes because we're in the middle of this tomato glut. 
And the first time I had what a uh, cœur de bœuf tomato. And cœur de bœuf is this like really heart heart shape comes and makes a point at the bottom. I've never seen them before. I remember the exact day I'm walking through a village. There's a garden. I was always kind of curious. This is before I had my garden here. <laughs> and I saw an old guy in his outside gardening clothes. And he's, and I saw these things like Christmas ornaments hanging off of these plants. I said, what are those? And my French was very limited. And he explained to me it was que de boeuf, which is not easy, that O-E little thing. And it means ox heart. So not a beef steak, much tomato, but ox heart. And he gave me one or two, I can't remember exactly, and to take back to the boat. I was walking back to the boat. And the, I didn't see those for years. Nobody grew them commercially. They were an old, old variety. They have very thin skins. They don't travel. They mm. get bruised. And eventually, I mean, I started seeing them. I started planting them when I got, started planting my first garden here. Come on. And then now everybody in the area brings them to market, but they don't travel much further outside from, you know, like into urban areas, but they are an amazing flavor and texture, very meaty. They don't have a lot of the jelly on the inside, but that whole, every time I use one, I think of that memory of that walking and discovering them for the first time in a little village along the canal. And it's like, how could you, everything's going to always taste better if you have a memory like that. Right. And so many of those like really hyper local things sort of disappeared when food started being shipped around because of what you just said. If it can't survive the packaging and the, the transporting, then people aren't going to cultivate it for on any scale. Yeah, like I have a peach tree that, that is called a peche de vigne, a peach of the vines. I think primarily because it's a, a late harvest peach. So at the time the grapes are being harvested, this is when the peach is ripe. But it's red. It's deep, deep red, like a raspberry inside. And you never oh, wow. see those commercially because they bruise. They don't look pretty on the outside. They look kind of like gray. So there's a domestic fruit here called the pawpaw. I don't know if you've heard of it. I've heard about it, but I've never tasted one. It's strange. It's like you think it's a tropical fruit, but it literally disappeared from... You know, people didn't even know what it was for a long time, and it's been, but it's been coming back because of all this local food craze. It grows in like Washington D.C. of all. It <laughs> like grows this is exactly where it's local. Everywhere, and it grows all along the river. I mean, it's just absolutely everywhere. And I'm like, what were people thinking that whole 80 years that we forgot about pawpaws? But you pick one and you take it home, and it's already too bruised. Yeah, you does. like have to eat it right there. Yeah, that's how these peaches are too. They're just like amazing. They and they taste like raspberries. They have whatever that red thing is it makes you know mm -hmm. that deep color it has a certain flavor and yeah they're amazing and I unfortunately lost my tree due to some naughty goats oh. who decided to climb and push it over and oh. the branch broke it but I planted a new one a year ago this year we had a funny late frost so a lot of the fruit that set got frozen and dropped off so I won't have any this year, but like I always have just enough to share with a few friends and maybe make some sorbet or something like that. Uh, it's not so great to cook with it because they're like, so you just want to eat them. <laughs> yeah. So do you use raw dairy in your work? Yes, I do. I, again, fortunate that one of the farms that I work with and the second generation, the younger generation and their, and their late 20s and early 30s decided to go into dairy, which this part of France doesn't have as much dairy as I say Normandy does the Pyrenees. And so they saw a little gap in there and they have an organic, a completely organic dairy and they sell raw milk and yogurts and fromage blanc and amazing and ice cream. So I can get raw milk easily. It's not illegal here. Yeah. It's very, very difficult to get here. And People don't really understand about it. There's a lot of misunderstanding. Of course, our, the whole cheese culture in France is yeah. based on raw milk mm -hmm. cheeses being the ripen and do these amazing transformation because they start with raw milk, not pasteurized. So tell us about the cooking classes that you do, yeah. the retreats. I mean, they just look yeah. so... Are they going to come back soon? 
Well, they are coming back. I actually okay. started, I put some dates up because I had a whole lot of people who were booked for last year. We had to stop. And some people, you know, people in Australia, I get mostly Anglophones, as you can imagine. Um, I'm kind of the conduit for people who don't speak French, but also that I can translate the culinary culture for them from French to whatever in English. But most of my clients are American students that come from the States, but also from all over the world. So I just put out some dates to see what would happen. And right away, I started to get bookings for September and October. I actually have already made this step that I was going to back away from doing in-person classes. I felt that, you know, not just because of COVID, but in the travel, but I've been doing it for 30 years. And Mm -hmm. I thought, you know, I have invested a lot of energy into doing the video classes and things online and learning all these new tools. And I thought, well, I can't do everything. I'm gonna keep doing that. So I'm going to balance so for the next year so I can complete the courses that we had already booked and also welcome some new people, but knowing that this may not go on forever, but I will do some five day programs here where people come for a week basically we have five and they stay there with you no I don't have the room for that and I really at this point in my life like somebody else to take care of the other parts of the the like breakfast and dinner so I work uh, you know people come they show up about 9 30 we have coffee and croissants and we get cooking and we have a wonderful day of really you know a lot of preparation and cooking and lunch school lunch, which will be usually what we've prepared. And then with some market trips, obviously, or a producer's trip in the week as well. And then I will offer also like an insider's Gascony tour, which will be more of a food and wine tour rather than just cooking all day or cooking every day. Some people don't want to just do all the cooking. So I have those two programs that I put on the books or on my website. And I'll also to add on a road trip or two for 2022 to the Basque countries, which mm-hmm. I love down there and have great contacts in the charcuterie world. So I always spend time both in the Saint-Jean-Pied-de-la-Porte and Saint-Jean-de-Luz, both sides. We dip down into Spain and San Sebastian. And then I'll also do a trip into Catalonia on the Mediterranean side, just because I love seafood so much. So I'm doing, trying to balance. Those are usually in the like May, June, September, October months. And the rest of the time I'll be online. Tell us about the online classes. I was looking at it. It's a membership, right? So is it sort of a vault? Is it live? How does it work? Well, it's a combination of things. You can even do a membership. So you sort of have access to everything that I produce during the month, but you can also sort of a la carte go in and pluck different classes if you want to you know just take download a video watch a video and to learn how to make a specific dish I do a live class just once a month now mostly because of the time difference like mm-hmm. this is the time normally I would be doing the class about 6 six thirty, but it's also the end of my day I've been up for 12 hours and I'm not my freshest so I like to cook and teach when I'm in the morning So I do these live classes once a month. This Saturday, I'm going to do a tomato tart, which is sort of the height of the season. And then those are always recorded and available also for later. People want to download them. So I hope what people do is they catch the bug to want to learn more. It's not just how to make a certain dish, but all about the slow living, the slow cooking, the travel part of it and that's what the membership really is driven to so that I usually offer four classes in the month one week I do a little cookbook that's every month and then the newsletter which are sort of my weekly musings of whatever is coming across my table at that time something you said reminded me of something that's been coming up actually in the past few podcast interviews we've done but about how slow living the ethos of that is really comes down to the relationship with whatever your life, everything in your life. So here it's when you're describing your membership and your classes and you're saying, I want to emphasize not just how do you cook something, but like, I think it's really, you're doing a beautiful job of emphasizing the relationship, but not only the food, just the entire experience of everything that goes into the ingredients, to the process, to the seasons and what that means. 
your environment. Yeah. And I do think it's what you were saying earlier about the making the memories and choosing the things that we choose to do with our time. That's a very conscious effort to decide you're going to go to the market, the farmer's Mm -hmm. market. Now we have farmer's markets all year round. It's not just a summer seasonal thing. So in the winter, when it's raining and it's cold, you're going to bundle up and you're going to go because the farmer is there and he's bundled up. Mm-hmm. Or she's bundled up, and they're going to have pumpkins and all the root vegetables and things like that that are of the season. But if you don't go to the market, they won't be there when you want to go in the summer. Yeah. So I feel everything that I do, it's the reason I live here because I'm surrounded by it. I don't have to think about it. It's like it's Wednesday, I'll going to Labradac because the other thing, I'm going to meet my friends. I'm going to see people I've known for 25 or 30 years or buy cheese from the person who bought the cheese stand from the person who bought the cheese stand from the first time I came here. So I have a relationship, long standing relationship with some of those people. I do think that making those choices is easier here because of just sort of, it's like, if you want to go to church every day, you join a convent. Mm-hmm. And for me, that was coming here because I wanted to learn how to cook. This was the place to be. There's no doubt about it. That's a great way to put it. Yeah. Sometimes when you're talking about slow living, people say, well, you know, I can't do that. I can't sit around and have my feet up. And we say, you know, sometimes slow living is like actually more work, like bundling (laughs) up in the winter to go to the farmer's market. That's a decision. (laughs) Yeah. I I always say, well, I was sort of born for that because I do like to kind of crawl across things. I am that (laughs) escargot. And you think about, I lived on a barge that went five miles an hour. (laughs) I did not live on a speedboat or in an airplane. I love to travel slowly. I took a year to cross Africa. I want, you know, I would walk if I could do things because you see and collect images and ideas at such a different pace. And as much as I also like to get on a plane and, you know, hop over to another country, I also know that when I get there, I'm going to just like go in little tiny spiral circles until I've explored a one mm-hmm. entire neighborhood. And I may never get out of, you know, what everybody said, oh, did, you didn't go to Kyoto when you were in Japan? I went, no, I was like, <laughs> only there 10 days. I was yeah. in the part of Tokyo, <laughs> but I knew every little tiny spot, you know, that I was uncovering. So I, I am born for that. I love the slow and going back over and over something until I understand it, which mm-hmm. comes from my theater background, because you can do, you can only do a puppet show for 600 kids if you have done it so many times, you know what's going to happen the next time, you know when they're <laughs> going to laugh, you know when they're going to go, ah! you know, you have to practice and do your rehearsals. So I'm like that with cooking too. I wing things. People think I just throw stuff together. I have done recipes over and over and over and over and over. I may do them differently each time, but I'm always building on the level layers, like, you know, going back and revisiting and saying, oh, that's what that is. So oftentimes when I look at a recipe and I say, why do they do this? Why do you put a custard in a bain-marie in an oven? And I look back and say, because those were done in the 17th century and wood-fired ovens when the heat was only on the bottom, you didn't have a convection oven with a, you know, a micro thermostat that was, you know, to getting every part of it. And, and so even I changed the way I looked at how I cook by trying to modernize my own understanding. Yeah. I, I like to do things the old way, but I like to do things also in the modern Yeah, we don't check everything from the modern world. (laughs) No, and I'll ask students, you know, I work a lot with professional chefs who, you know, come loaded, fully loaded with all their experience and and then ask, well, why do you do that? Mm -hmm. And nobody understands why. They know how, you know, they've done this, they can do this with their eyes closed. I say, well, why do you do that? And when they start to look, I say, well, if you don't need to do it, what if you do something, just skip that step and do the next thing? And it's not cutting corners. It's understanding the essence of a recipe for me is understanding why it is what it is. I think it bears looking at when, especially if people aren't confident Mm -hmm. and that as a teacher, what I try to do is I try to build confidence so that no matter what level you're at, you can work with what you have in your own home. I think there's inspiration, you know, I hope I inspire people to want to go out and buy better food or do something different or make it French. 
And then there's the instruction, the how to do something, do this first and do, but I'm not so pedantic about that. But I think that the inspiration and the instruction are only kind of balanced if you have the confidence to just experiment and know you're not going to fall on your place. Right. You could do something wrong one time. And I think you have to be willing to go at a slower pace to be able to appreciate those, to ask why, to explore things. Yeah, I think that the time given to the things you do every day, eating and cooking are sort of basic life skills. You should devote enough time to make them good. What do you like to do when you're not cooking? Yeah, I watch Netflix a lot. (laughs) Me too. (laughs) I I love movies. And it's been a quiet year plus, and we had curfews for months and months. We couldn't go out after seven o'clock. But I'm not a night owl to begin with. And I'm only 15 minutes from Agen, which is like 50,000 people. So there's things, places to go, restaurants. And, but since everything was closed down, you can go anywhere. I found that my life didn't really change much. Yeah. I like to read, but I love to watch movies. And so having, you know, all those streaming services, I could watch every single movie I ever wanted to. <laughs> I haven't quite got bored with it yet. I hope you have good internet. And I like to read, but I tend to take the reading in bed and then watch movies before that. Well, do you do all your setup for your videos and stuff by yourself? Are you? I've had to. Oh, I've yeah. Because we've had, we literally, we've been on lockdown. When I don't think people understood in the States when things say lockdown. They mean lockdown. Oh, I know. Our son was over there last April and we heard firsthand. There were a little openings and closings, but I had my good friend's, we really did not see, I mean, we did some drive-bys because we were all cooks and the, the three or four friends I have in the same area. And so we would drop off food for other people. That was mm. sort of a nice way to not eat your own cooking all the time. <laughs> but we weren't even encouraged to get out in your car. You could be stopped at a gendarmes. You had yeah. to have an attestation saying where you were going and why you were going. Right. So you just got used to sort of staying home. And so when I started doing the videos, I have a good friend in Italy, Judy Witz, who is a fantastic culinary teacher as well. And she and I have been pals for many years and she just jumped right in and she started doing YouTube. And I'm like, God, I can't do that by myself. And gradually I got the guts up with some encouragement from her and uh, using my iPad and my iPhone and set up and got some lights. And it's different when you're cooking and just talking to yourself. When you're doing a live Zoom class, you have some feedback or can have some feedback. Mm -hmm. But I find that if I'm doing that, I just have to concentrate on what I'm cooking. So I don't even have conversations till we're sort of finished. Yeah. You do such a good job. And the lighting is great and the setting. Well, you know, I was the one thing I did that I didn't know, but I wanted to refresh the kitchen a couple of years ago. And so last year, you know, when everything kind of got quiet and Mm -hmm. nobody could travel, I said, I'm just going to repaint everything. And the walls in the old kitchen were... It was beeswax over plaster. I had oh done gosh. that many years ago. So it was like this dark yellow. And over time, it had sort of yellow ochre. And it, this warm, wonderful, but dark. And I decided I wanted to brighten everything up. So I scraped all that wax off and wow. sanded things down. And we painted everything sort of this creme fresh, thick white mm. color. I felt that when I did end up doing the videos, it was like, I was so smart that I did this. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Not knowing what was going to happen. Kate, what does the good dirt mean to you? I love that name. I find myself sometimes having to explain to French people when I say dirt is not dirty. <laughs> you know, for me, dirt is soil. Right. And so it's like the basis of everything. And there was a book many years ago called French Dirt. I don't know if you've ever oh. read that. It's a sweet little book about a guy who goes to France. It was a guy who goes to France and has a little life epiphany in, in learning to garden. So when I saw the good dirt, I thought like, well, there's like, let's dish the dirt on something. Let's talk about that. But for me, the good dirt is the fertile soil of what everything comes from, whether it's the food that we've been talking about or our own lives where I sit right now and I'm looking outside and I'm seeing my, my cat on a table and this a rose bush, which is just like going crazy and a pomegranate tree and forage and an apple tree and the tomatoes all have blight. And 
but they're all coming out of this good dirt of where I'm sitting in this Scarone River Valley that continues to be valued for that good dirt. Mm -hmm. And it's protected by the French culture Uh to not develop this, to not lose that. So I'm very appreciative of that phrase. So, all right. Well, we will wrap it up for you. But in closing, what would you like to leave our audience with about the work that you do? Or is there anything else you'd like to share with us before we close? I think that the for me, the situation that I find that we've all been in the last couple of years has been so difficult for a lot of people, loss or grief or you know, just sort of like, what are we doing next? Uh, It's taken a long time to come through this. What I've realized is that the everyday part that I always talked about actually is really the basis of the most important thing in my life. And the people that I know, the people that I, my family or my friends, which are, you know, many of them very far away, I haven't seen in a couple of years, are part of that. But it's the everyday motions Mm -hmm. I go through from waking up, to, you know, dealing with my animals or making the coffee. I mean, all those very small motions of daily life all of a sudden became more meaningful for me. But I feel that this time for me has been a way to really relook at everything and reevaluate the important bits. And the important bits, you know, obviously not just cooking for friends and family, that's great. But when there was nobody around, I had to learn to cook for myself. Yeah. And it was a hard transition to do. So I hope that what I do now in writing, I write more, share that with people, share through the videos and the and things that I'm doing online is a way of inspiring people to look at their own life and find that little bit of France in your own life. I love that. And I also, I want to tell our audience that, you know, you are also a wonderful storyteller in your blogs and on your website, the entries that you have, the newsletters. It's great for me because it makes me get up in the morning sometimes and I pour coffee and I'm sitting right where I sit here and I look out that garden and I say, what would I want to tell people about? Mm-hmm. What do I want to share? And that newsletter is a way for me to share that. You are a wonderful storyteller. Is there a quick story you'd like to relate to us so we can work it in? I should tell you a story about the old man who lived here. It's a memory. And I think that, you know, I worry that, oh, nobody's going to remember him later when I'm gone or he's gone. His daughter still lives across the street. So, and I know them, but Monsieur Dupuis was the one, the original or the farmer who owned the property a couple of times before me. So when I came here in 89, he was probably in, he's probably my age. He was in the seventies. And he would go around with a, a pit helmet on and like a blue overcoat and two different boots and two canes. He'd kind of thump down and he'd come in and he still acted like he owned the place because he, for years, he had harvested snails. He had planted or encouraged watercress in the spring. He knew where the mush, all the mushrooms were growing, which stumps they were on. And it was watching him move through this landscape that made me realize that it was his relationship with this house, but never, even though it had been sold yeah. a couple of times over, he still had this relationship with this buildings and this land that would never disappear. And I sort of feel like, I think I've now added on to that and that oh. my relationship with this place called Kamant will be that line from out of Africa, I had a farm of his friends in Gascony. Yeah. <laughs> I also see for Monsieur Dupuis, I feel like that's a great children's book too. Yeah. yeah was, him. You know, he would do things like he would come through my garden and collect snails and then sell them back to me. <laughs> but he would take them home. Oh, and he would take the roses that were, you know, starting to go over. He would take them to feed to the snails to purge them. And then he would, it was, everything was always 10 francs. <laughs> That's so funny. Yeah, he is a great character. That's wonderful. How long has he been gone? A long time? He's uh, yeah, actually uh, probably close to 20 years now. Wow. And, and I took the boat on a long, uh, like a year and a half trip in the year 2001. 
and he passed away during that while I was gone. So it was sort of appropriate. He just, uh, his spirit is still here. Very yeah, nice. absolutely. And I have a couple of his pictures I took of him. That is a wonderful story. Thank you. I'm so glad I, I know. had you throw that in. <laughs> That's so great. So you've been so generous with your time. This has been so yeah, much fun. Thank you fun. so much. It's so great to talk with you guys. We hope that you enjoyed this wonderful talk with Kate, and we hope we haven't given you too much of a travel bug. I know now all I want to do is go to France and go to her cooking classes, but <laughs> it seems like we might have to wait a little longer for that. But what you can do now is go on to Kate's account at Kate DeCamon in Instagram or on her website and try out some of her wonderful recipes. I've been absolutely obsessed with the tart tomate because we've had a ton of tomatoes the last couple of weeks and I think I've made it like six times. It's so good. It's awesome. So go there and do that and have a little bit of France in your own kitchen. Speaking of traveling, my mom and I are actually both going away next week. Yeah, I'm going to the beach. And I'm going to a wedding. And so we're not going to have a new interview next week. We're going to be taking a little bit of a break. But stay tuned anyways. We'll definitely be back the following week. And in the meantime, we may be publishing something else. But just stay tuned and you'll know. Yeah, we need to take our own slow living advice. And sometimes just take a break. Yeah. So we will see you in a couple of weeks. Thank you so much for tuning in. Yes. Happy summer, everybody. It's going fast. So soak it up. Bye. Bye.